0: Amen. Let me dismiss the uh, school-aged kids um, to uh, head to their classes. While the rest of us, if we would open up to Jonah chapter 1, we'll finish uh, chapter 1 today. Um, meant to finish it last week, but we ran out of time. And um, I tell you, for me, it's been great to study the book of Jonah. Um, I think because I see my own tendency and my own heart to run from the things that God has called me to. Um, And maybe you see some of that in you. It's been great even in my huddle and community group discussing um, some of these things. So uh, we're going to look at the second part of Jonah. And today we're going to be confronted with the jealous anger of God. Just a quick recap from last week. Jonah was a successful prophet, uh, contemporary of Hosea and Amos. Um, He was successful, uh, 2 Kings tells us, and prophesying certain things about the nation of Israel. And as far as we know, things had gone well up until this point until God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh. uh, Jonah hated hated Nineveh and did not want to go, so he found a ship heading the opposite direction. He rebelled against God, found a ship headed to Tarsus, the exact opposite direction, and so um, we're going to look at God's loving confrontation of Jonah and how sometimes even in our own lives God brings storms as discipline to get our attention as much as we might not like it. Let me say a quick prayer for us before we get into his word. God, I pray that your word would go forth today, would bring conviction in our hearts, would be encouragement to those that are weary, um, or that we would clearly hear your call in our life. And that we would respond in obedience. Thank you for your word. May it come alive to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We mentioned last week too that if you don't find, if you don't really want to do what God's calling you to do, there will always be a ready way to do what is wrong. Ready does not always mean right. Just because an opportunity is in front of you, and you think, man, all these things are coming together, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is the direction that God is leading you in. That's why we focus so much on dependence on the Holy Spirit, this peace that should rule your heart, Colossians talks about. Just because there's an opportunity in front of you doesn't mean it's the right one. So let's look. um, Let's start in verse 4, verses 1 through 3. God speaks to Jonah. Jonah decides to go the opposite direction. Verse 4. the god will give us will give a thought to us that we may not perish and they said to one another come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us and so they cast lots and the lot fell on jonah they said to him tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us what is your occupation and where do you come from what is your country and of what people are you and he said to them i'm a hebrew And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I've probably read this passage a hundred times in my um, life uh, as a believer. Certainly we were taught this. A lot of times Jonah is considered a kid's story because of the, uh, the great fish. I remember very vividly at some little Baptist church somewhere learning this in some Sunday school on flannel graph with little pictures and a uh, teacher explaining this to us. But it has never captured my heart, and it has never produced as much repentance in the heart of your pastor as this past couple weeks as we've been in it. And I've been reading it, and I see my own tendency in Jonah to not trust God. Sure, God's come through for me every time. Sure, he's always been faithful. But there's something within me that wants to war against God's plan for my life. And I have thought even this week, how messed up is your thinking when you rebel? How messed up is your thinking when the God who loves you and has proven that through the cross, how messed up is our thinking when we rebel against him? I tell my kids this all the time. I know that in your three or four or six or seven years of experience that you think you know everything there is to know in life. But I need you to trust dad for a minute because dad's walked through this. I need you to trust me. And even more so when the kids grow older and they're in junior high and they think they've got all of life figured out, right? That we'll say this to our kids again and again, because dad or mom, we've got a different perspective. We've walked through this before. And in the same way, how silly is is it for us to rebel against God, the God of the universe, the God that made everything, the God that spoke these things into being. Who are we when God calls us or speaks us or prompts us for us to shake our fist at him and say, God, I know you think you know everything, but me and my 37 years of life experience... I think I'm going to go my way, and I'm going to trust my gut on this. And how loving is it for God and his grace to pursue us. And this is what we see here in the opening phrase. We see that God spoke to Jonah in verse 1. We see Jonah, with a heart of rebellion, decides to go the opposite way. And then in verse 4 starts, but the Lord hurled this great wind upon the sea. There was this mighty tempest, so much so that the ship threatened to break up. And it was such a storm that even the sailors themselves were afraid. And, and that's, that's an oxymoron right there. That's, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the sailors were afraid. How many, how many storms have they sailed through in their life? And they're afraid, the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to their God. I want to see first, us to see and notice is that God's the one that sends them this storm. God wasn't hopeful that some storm would arise. It says that God literally threw it or he hurled the storm, and not just the storm, but this incredible storm. God threw the storm on Jonah. I have this mental picture as I was thinking of this as the storm is only like 100 yards wide. Like everything else is beautiful. They can see rainbows out in the distance. But all the while, right, because God had sent the storm to Jonah to get his attention. And we see immediately that God is a jealous God. And we see his jealous and righteous anger of God. This wasn't the anger of vengeance or the anger of condemnation or the anger of judgment. This was the anger, the jealous, righteous anger of a loving father trying to get his son's attention. I read this this week. The same God, <clears throat> the same God who stills the storms in the life of the submissive ones creates <clears throat> and brings storms into the life of the rebellious ones. The same God who stills the storms in the life of the submissive ones creates and brings storms into the life of the rebellious ones. I said last week, and I've thought all along, if I was God, then I would have been done with Jonah at this point. Okay, buddy, you want to go to Tarsus? Well, have have it your way. Here comes the storm. As soon as he hits the water, we're done with Jonah. And I thought that all week. Man, if I was God, I would have. But I wasn't looking at Jonah like he was one of my kids. Because if my kids had rebelled in such a way, I would not have been done with them. I would have been on my knees pleading for them. And that is certainly what God does here. God's grace is so evident here because God's anger is there against Jonah to turn him back towards what's best for him. That we can see the grace of God and the anger of God meet together in this story and we can see it, we'll talk later, as it's Purely defined for us on the cross of Christ. I remember when Claire was probably three years old, we lived in uh, two or three, we lived in Dallas, and uh, we had a mailbox kind of up the road a little bit. It wasn't right in front of our house, one of those little collection of mailboxes. And one of the things that Claire and I would do was we'd go check the mail together. And I remember one day us going down the end of the driveway and hanging a left and going up just a little bit, and there was our mailbox. And Claire, being the oldest child, um, maybe not just because of that, but she has this uh, independence that she thinks that she knows everything, <clears throat> and she wants to be independent. And the closer we got to the road, a couple cars started coming. I reached down and grabbed Claire's hand. I said, "Claire, I need you to hold Dad's hand. This is this is dangerous." And Claire, as typical of her, she started pulling away. Maybe you've done that with your kids. You grab their hand in a busy place or next to a busy street, and Claire's pulling away, trying to get, that, get, the, get her hand away. And when she knew I'm tightening my grip all the more because she's headed right towards the road if she pulls away, this could be disaster for her, certainly. I grip all the more tightly. And then Claire, with her last effort to sway dad, just completely melts down and throws herself on the ground. Maybe you've experienced this before. And to such a degree that it pulled her elbow out of socket. And she's screaming, all the neighbors think I'm abusing my kid at this point, right? They're looking at me and, with judgment and condemnation. Claire, uh, Ashley runs outside like, what, is, what did you do to her? <laughs> no, it's what she did to herself. Um, <laughs> that sometimes, I was reminded that while reading this, sometimes we cause our kids pain to save them from ultimate destruction or for even worse pain, from even worse pain, and the same thing, that this is what God is doing to Jonah here. In his grace, he's not done with Jonah. No, he lovingly sends this discipline of a storm to him to get his attention, to turn him back to what's best for him. We see immediately after that, the tempest comes upon the sea, and then in verse 5, the mariners were afraid And they began praying to their own God, not to the God of the Bible. You'll notice maybe in your uh, translation of Scripture there, it's a little G. They're praying out to their own God. This is not the God of the Bible. This is just some abstract deism, like casting this wide net. If we would all pray to our own gods, then maybe someone's prayer will reach the God of the sea, and then this will go away. And I want us to make note of this, that this is, how, this is how sailors act in this story, but this is how lost people act in general. Lost people act like lost people. They do not have a biblical worldview to see things. When things get rough, they, they're crying out with everything they have, but they don't even know who they're speaking to. We shouldn't get mad at people around us who say hurtful things or do ignorant things because they're lost. They don't have biblical worldview. They don't have a foundation of wisdom. And so the sailors are praying, and this is the irony of the moment, is the sailors, the lost sailors, are praying, and the one believer on the ship is sleeping. It makes you want to kill him, doesn't it, Jonah down there sleeping? The mariners were afraid, each crying out to their own God. That didn't work. They started hurling the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them, That didn't work. Jonah's down in the inner part of the ship. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Perish. The sailors are doing what they know how to do, praying to their God, lightening the load, rowing harder. But Jonah's sin is not only affecting himself at this point, it's affecting people around him, as sin always does. It's affecting those that are on the ship. And when we buy the lie of Satan that we believe that our sin is just about us and our selfishness just affects us, then we miss the point of sin because sin is this downward spiral in and of itself, but it destroys everything around it. What does Matt Chandler say? It it has of it the, the stench of death. At the root of Jonah's sin and all sin is this rampant selfishness that destroys the people around him. Think about the son or daughter running from God whose parents are in the next room over weeping out and crying for their lost son or daughter to come back to God. Think about the man that runs to pornography in the wee hours of the evening. So selfish thinking of only himself while his wife and kids are suffering endlessly because he won't be the spiritual leader of the home. The sin doesn't just affect the person who is sinning. No, sin affects everyone around us. That certainly is true with Jonah here. As he's living in sin, the sailors around Jonah in fear of their life. And maybe some of us in here need to hear the same voice of the captain who went to find Jonah and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? This exhortation is a wake-up call for us. But not only here, but in a dozen different places throughout Scripture. Ephesians 5 may be familiar with you, where Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. When their prayers didn't work, verse 7, they wanted to know who to blame. They said to one another in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. When the prayers didn't work, they wanted to know who to blame. This is a tactic of the enemy from the very beginning in the the, the days of the garden. Who can we blame? But we know who to blame here, and it was certainly Jonah. He was running from God. And just as Proverb tells us that God is sovereign over the casting of lots, that God is sovereign here, and the rock fell on Jonah. Look at Jonah's response in verse 9. He said to them, "I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land." They come to Jonah,, the Jonah the, they, they come, they cast lots, they look at it, it falls on Jonah. They come to Jonah in verse eight, saying, "Tell us about this. What is your occupation? What curse do you have on you, basically? Where do you come from? What is your country? And he responds with this phrase that he has said probably a dozen times or more than that, that he is a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And we notice, I want us to notice this gap again we talked about last week between Jonah's confessional theology and his functional theology. And here's the warning for us. Don't confuse biblical knowledge with spiritual maturity. Just because someone labels themselves a Christian or even knows a lot about walking with God does not mean they are walking with God. You know what the true marker for spiritual maturity is? It's submissiveness to the call of God on your life. Any one of us can be submissive to God's call in our life in the future. Any one of us can brag about our submissiveness to God's call in our life in the past. But that's not the point. The point is our submissiveness to God's call in our life right now, that we've laid our yes right on the table, that we've said, God, whatever you want from me, I am willing to do that. That's the marker of spiritual maturity. Here's the truth. You are only as surrendered as your next step. You are only as yielded to God, obedient to him, based upon your willingness to follow him today, not in the past, not in the future, but today. What is he calling you to do today? What is the Spirit prompting you with obedience, putting this step in front of you? What is he calling you to do today? Surely that blew the the sailor's mind as he starts talking about, now he says, listen, I'm a Hebrew, and he starts talking about this God of the Bible, this Yahweh God, And certainly just a few hundred miles from where Jonah had grown up, these sailors knew the God of the Bible. Look at verse 10. As soon as they heard what Jonah had said, that he's the Hebrew, it says that these men were exceedingly afraid. They were afraid, and then they were more afraid. And then in verse 10, now they're exceedingly afraid. Why? Because they knew this is the same God that parted the Red Sea. This is the same God that knocked the walls down. This is, this is that God. This is the same God that used just a few dozen warriors to overtake huge empires. This is that God who sent his angel in the middle of the night to slay over 100,000 people. This is that God. And Jonah is saying, I'm a Hebrew. I'm serving this Yahweh God. God. And these men were exceedingly afraid. And I love their reaction to him in verse 10. What is this that you have done? These men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is the third or fourth time that we have that phrase. Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The sailors are freaking out, and they respond with the question that maybe you would ask a friend if you see them rebelling against God. Dude, what are you doing? Seriously, have you lost your mind? You, you say right there in Scripture that you fear the God of the Bible, the God who created all things and sustains all things. Hebrews tells us that by the word of his mouth, he's holding all things together right now. That's the God and you are silly enough, or closed-minded enough, or your heart is darkened enough because of your sin that you think you're going to run from him, what are you doing? They had every reason to fear. They had every reason to freak out. And what Jonah should have done just right then, after he told them who he was, and they asked, man, what have you done? Look at verse 11, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea gets worse, more and more intense, why? Because Jonah's not, Jonah hadn't got the message yet. The sea was intense enough to scare, scare, the, scare the sailors, and now it's getting more intense. And then in the next verse, it's going to get even more intense because Jonah's not getting the message. So they go to him and say, Jonah, okay, what can we do, man? You've commandeered the ship. We're headed to Tarsus. This, this storm is not letting up. As a matter of fact, it's getting worse. You're running from God. You're the reason the storm is here. Jonah, big prophet of God, tell us what we're supposed to do here. Maybe the better question that they should have asked him was not what are you doing, but why are you doing this? Are you tired of God, Jonah? Has he not kept his promises to you? Has he not provided for you? Have you found a better friend, Jonah? Has he not sustained you? Has he not answered every promise that he's given to us? Has he not been there every step of the way? Jonah, not what are you doing, but why are you doing this? And maybe for those of us in this room that find this Jonah, like heart and us, we would ask ourselves the same question. Why would we run from God? Why would Claire, as a three-year-old, try to throw herself into the street to get away from a dad who loves her? Verse 12, they ask what they should do. Verse 11, what shall we do? The sea may quiet down for us, and the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It scared him at the beginning, it's getting worse, and now it's growing worse and worse. And he says what he should have said there. He says in verse 12, well, you just need to pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea's going to quiet down. What he he should have said was, okay, boys, I know how to handle this. Just give me a minute. And Jonah walk over to a different part of the ship and get on his face before God and repent. That's what he should have done. I can handle this in just two seconds. And at the moment that he began to pray and repent in his own heart, that that sea would begin to be calm. Even then, but Jonah's heart was so hardened; he did not want to do what God wanted him to do. You find that familiar in your own heart. You ever been in a fight with your spouse? And even in the moment, you know that you're saying things that you should not say, but your heart is so hardened and so angry in that moment because you want to be right. And you want everyone else to know that you're right. And you let that thing out of your mouth that you wish you wouldn't have. And you know that you should just repent. You know that you should, you're, you're, <laughs> you're being mean and hurtful to those around you. You're being disobedient, rebellious to God, even in that moment, but you just can't stop. You just keep going further and further. Jonah should have just fallen down in front of them and repented. But instead, Jonah says his solution in verse 12 is to be thrown into the sea, ultimately in his mind, to his own death. How sad is this picture that Jonah in essence is saying, I would rather die than do what God has called me to do. I'd rather die. Can I remind us, church, that this is how dangerous pride is? How did Jonah get to this place from one time successful prophet of God, hearing and declaring God's word to the next moment or the next scene so far away from God? Let me tell you how. He did it one step after another. Every step he took, further and further away from the presence of God, his heart harder and harder. The longer you rebel, the harder it is to find your way back. This was not about Nineveh and Jonah's heart. This was about the hardness of his own heart. This was about his own selfishness. I'd rather die than do what God asked me to do, Jonah says. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. To get back to dry land. But they could not. Again here's the sea. Getting more and more. Tempestuous against them. Isn't it odd that the sailors cared more about Jonah's life. Than Jonah cared at this point. So they're going to. Get to dry land on their own. I think it's a natural response. To people who aren't submissive to God. They just keep rowing. You imagine this God of the Bible. Who measures. Who measures the galaxies by the span of his hand, like these little sailors are going to be able to paddle out of this storm. God just puts his finger right there on the boat and said, keep trying, mister, you're not going anywhere. I'm dealing with Jonah here. Finally, they threw him overboard. And there's this unique change in the text, too. Right before they throw him overboard, look at it in verse 14. It says, therefore, they called out to the Lord. This is God's Hebrew covenant name, Yahweh. At the beginning of the chapter, they're calling out to their own little gods, and then they're understanding maybe a little bit more through God's anger and His grace. And ultimately, these people themselves become God-fearers. We see a change in their heart. They're not praying to the little gods anymore in some kind of vague deism. Through God's anger, they found God's grace. maybe because of your disobedience. You've hurt people around you and you've hurt them for a long time. And the enemy, even this morning, would not want to just bring conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We want to bring guilt on you. And look at how God, through this unfortunate circumstance in Jonah's life, that God intended the grace abounds more and more. This is what Keller says about God's grace married with God's anger. I think I have this on the screen. Grace is pursuing and intercepting self-destructive behavior. Grace is fierce love, dogged love, determined love. And it won't stop until it hurts you just enough to wake you up. God sent the storm. God determined the lots. God kept the prophet in the belly of the fish that we're going to read, all for the good of Jonah. Jonah. We know that God wasn't bent on destroying this man. The purpose of the difficulty was to draw him back. A lot of times the storms in our life are sent there by God, not just allowed by God and not every one of them, but some of the storms allowed in our life or sent in our life by God to get our attention. The anger of God expressed, again, wasn't vengeful. God cared as much for the missionary as he did the mission. Just this thought just struck my heart so deeply this week as I thought about this. Sometimes maybe that we would tend to think that God cares more about his mission that he's called us to. He cares more about that than he does us who actually carry the mission. Like we're some pawn in his great plan. But we don't see that at all in the book of Jonah. As a matter of fact... God cared as much about the missionary, as much about Jonah as he did the mission, taking the gospel or this message, of declaration of repentance and faith to Nineveh. There's a few things I want us to notice about God's anger and grace and how they are married together first. If you're in Christ, you don't need to fear the vengeful wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full anger of God. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we have the guarantee that the Father will never express destructive, eternal anger at us, ever. All of that laid upon the shoulders of Christ on the cross. But next, we will feel redemptive anger in this lifetime. God will personally deliver uncomfortable grace to our doorstep, not to harm us, but to help us. Like Jonah, we will experience pain and suffering from the hand of God because it's the only way for our running hearts to be brought near to God again. Just like Claire's trying to jump into the busy streets, God as a loving father is gonna hold on to us and he's gonna bring pain in our life at times to turn our running hearts back to him. Finally, the third thing i want us to see about the anger and grace of god that it's the hope of the universe in a world where wickedness abounds more and more we need a god who will stand against that which is wrong whether in this world or the judgment that follows evil will not win god is angry with the current state of our world and it will be dealt with justly In this story, we see this anger of God and the grace of God meeting, and it makes me think of Jesus. Matthew 12, Jesus compares his ministry to the ministry of Jonah. Not that Jesus ever ran from God, but that he was a prophet to a lost world. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus would be in a sealed tomb just as Jonah was spit up on dry land, Jesus would rise from the grave. You get the, you get the symbolism, Jesus used it, using it in Matthew 12. But we also see this grace of God and anger of God meeting together. What drove Jesus to the cross? It was the anger of God towards sin, that he hated sin, and that sin separated us from God and it had to be dealt with justly what drove Jesus to the cross it was the anger of God towards sin but what kept Jesus on the cross it was the grace of God towards sinners talking about this with the group that prayed earlier the only person in the whole book of Jonah that didn't obey God was Jonah you see that The storm obeyed God, the rocks, the lot obeyed God, the pagan sailors obeyed God, the fish obeyed God, the Ninevites at the end obeyed God, everybody obeyed God, except for God's prophet Jonah. Next week, we're going to talk about repentance. We see Jonah finally repents. We see in this passage that it wasn't wasn't as soon as the fish even swallowed him up that he repented. He lays in this fish with the acidic acid and the hot temperatures. And can you even imagine the smell for three days? Can you imagine the stubbornness of Jonah and that point? Can I ask you a question? You don't have to wait till next week when we talk about repentance to repent. You can handle that today with God. Why why wait? Why wait another minute? Why wait another hour? Why wait certainly another day or another week when all you have to do, if Jonah just would have laid down and repented, why go another minute? You need really two things to repent. You need to ask God to specifically tell you where you've been disobedient. And you need a repentant and submissive heart that says, God, I'm sorry that I've chosen my way over your way again and again. I was thinking about this passage this week. The times in my life where I was so stubborn and hard-hearted towards God and the joy that came into my life through repentance. I remember after I went away to school, went to Louisiana College, my uh, freshman year in college it's my first time to have real freedom you know without the parents and it's not that I did anything really stupid that I regret it's just my heart just drifted away towards God just live live selfishly and stopped seeking him stopped being obedient to the prompting I remember him calling me very clearly to go and be a witness to a sweet mate just across the room and I just I just rebelled it's I said God, "There's no way I'm doing that." He was older than me. He's, you know, on the baseball team. I was intimidated. I said, "God, there's no way." If you've heard what's come out of his mouth, you don't want him anyway, God. He's he's not fit for your team. I remember rebelling against God. Beginning of that semester, and I remember that God, as He does a lot of times, will remove His spirit from us. Where. We don't feel him close because we're the one that's been disobedient. I m- remember as I think back, even as I remember just the thoughts and feelings of that desert time in my life. I go home for Christmas. I remember uh, sitting on the couch. My family's all together. My dad had all these uh, traditions we just prayed before everything we just prayed a lot and so it's christmas morning and i'm just ready for gifts and my dad said we're going to take a little bit and pray and one of our family members was going through just a pretty nasty divorce and we're praying for them and we're praying shared the story with you before i positioned myself to where i could go last and then everything that needed to be prayed for would have been prayed for and i could just ditto their prayers right and then we could get on to the gifts and my heart was hardened towards God. I remember God in his kindness. I don't remember who prayed first, but they began to pray. and My sister prayed. and My brother prayed. And my mama prayed. And the tears just started to flow. I was so angry at God when I walked into that room, just numb towards him. Not for any real reason. I just wanted to live for myself. God, and his kindness just broke me down. It got to me, and I am just tears everywhere, trying to get through a prayer. The next day, I was listening to one of the reasons we did this uh, song this morning I heard some of you even snickering a little bit like that's a, that's a that's an old song better is one day Wesson must have just run out of things to sing <laughs> I remember listening to that song later on that day Just such a balm to my weary heart at that moment and I found it in Psalms 84 and I read it I heard it this week on the radio of all things and it just turned my heart back to that moment let read Psalms 84 to you just to remind you of how great being in God's presence really is. There's no, there's no reason to run anymore. There's just not any, no reason to run. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. That they may go through the valleys of Baca they may make it a place of springs. Their early rain also covers it with pools. This valley of Baca was this desert, arid region. Verse 7, I love this phrase. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, our God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. We're going to take communion here in a minute. We're going to give you some time to deal with God wherever you're at. Paul instructs us in a letter to the Corinthians, before we take communion, we ought to really just examine our hearts. Maybe the sin in your life is very evident. You've been trying to hide it. You've been, you've been pushing it to the side. You just don't want to admit it. And Like Jonah, you're running maybe. Your running's a little bit more covert than others. Maybe you're just slowly drifting away. You're just not seeking him like you should. Maybe he's put before you something. He's called, your own Nineveh that he's called you to, and you just you're just not happy about it. You just don't want to go the way he's leading you. What a great day to get to get right with God. And I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then after you've um, had a moment to think through and evaluate and to pray. Our communion service will be here. If you're new here, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion with us. Scripture just says you have to be part of his family. So as long as you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you desire to live a life obedient to him, that you're welcome to participate with this, with us in this as a reminder of God's anger and God's grace his anger and sin that Jesus bore, and his love for sinners. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the sweetness of your presence. And then ultimately, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And I thank you for, Lord, just your long-suffering, for your mercy that abounds more and more. I pray for those in this room. Maybe some in here aren't even part of your family. They've never trusted you as Lord and Savior. What I pray today is a day that they make that right with you, that they they come to you, repenting of their sin and trusting you as their only hope for heaven. I I pray today that they're added to your family. For others in this room, even some of us men, the watching world would think that we're a prophet of God the way we put on a good show. But if we're honest, really honest, inside of our heart of hearts, we're far from you. We know the right language and what to say and how to act. But we haven't felt your spirit, your presence with us in such a long time. I pray that that person wouldn't run any longer. Lord, thank you for Jesus, your love for us communicated to us on the cross of Jesus, and for this picture of communion that we can take every week and just be a reminder that even if we're walking through some of the difficulties of life, that you're with us, that your heart is for us. Lord, I pray that your church would respond as you're leading them to respond. It's in Jesus' name, Amen.